Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good Friday afternoon, everybody. Holy smokes, what a week we had. It is over. Uh, I don't want to say thank goodness because, you know, anytime time passes, uh, in a, you lose it and it's gone and you don't ever get it back. You only have it in your memory bank, but it it's kind of nice that it's Friday and I get a little bit of downtime so to speak it's been uh, a pretty crazy week we we actually had a, a breakdown yesterday in the uh, in the yard as far as the equipment went we had just hauled a pretty pretty big boat set up the lift to get the next one and uh, some of the bearings were shot in these big gigantic blocks that uh, you know basically hoist the whole thing so we had to uh, Cut all the hauls for yesterday and then overnight some parts. And it's pretty amazing to watch uh, some of these veterans here be able to essentially tear apart and rebuild every single piece of equipment. And that means a travel lift, a giant crane, uh, the tractor, pretty much anything at the yard that's mechanical can be rebuilt by these guys that work here, Jim and Dave. I mean, it, it really is uh pretty amazing to see that and uh i don't know it kind of makes me think what areas what areas am i sort of proficient in that and i mean i guess in some ways in the the whole sailing thing but there's still quite a few things that are a bit of a mystery in the old engine room and uh you know when it comes to like rigging and and things like that i was actually trying to splice this big anchor line for a friend of mine and I went and did a couple splices that I needed to do for Sparrow on some smaller line, you know, like quarter inch stuff. And I've done that before, but it had been a while. So I went and, you know, wanted to practice first and got a couple of them done and then went to grab this line. And this stuff is, uh, it's bigger than half inch. It's big and it's jacketed line so it has a coat coating on it and stuff oh my gosh it's so far out of my wheelhouse as far as how how to even get the core out through some of that material and i i haven't seen him yet but i dropped it off on his boat and said you know basically i can't do it but uh i don't know just one of those things um they like to say that sailors are have to be like a jack of all trades and i think that's very true uh, you need to know a little bit about this and a little bit about that and everything. But, uh, when it comes to the yard and the equipment and stuff that these guys deal with, they're not jack of all trade. They're masters of all these trades, but holy cow. So just peeling these bandages off, uh, had a bit of a, bit of an accident last night. Um, so after work yesterday, it was pretty much go time to get the mast up and running because there was a chance we were going to actually throw the stick back on Sparrow today. And uh, so I'm down there, and essentially the last job that needed to be done was to uh, mount these two winches for the jib halyard and the main halyard on the mast. And the reason I had to pull those off was essentially it's brass, 
brass winches or bronze winches with stainless steel screws going into aluminum and they weren't they weren't really properly bedded with like tef gel and stuff like that so in any event after years of being out there at sea and not being washed down they corroded like crazy underneath one of the winches actually the base of the winch completely cracked in half because of all this corrosion or as some of these guys like to say the fizz the fizzle of aluminum so in any event, had to clean it all up. Wasn't too bad. There are these big plates that are welded onto the aluminum mast. They're aluminum as well. And essentially clean those up. And I made some G10, which is a composite uh, fiberglass material. Crazy, super strong. I made some perfect circle plates for those to cover. So essentially now there's this G10 in between the actual winches and the aluminum so there's a little bit of a buffer i put a ton of tef gel on all the screws and everything and it's all 5200 together so there shouldn't be any um any salt water getting in to be able to sort of mix all those metals and materials up but uh, i had to re-thread all of the holes for mounting the winches and so i'm doing that last night and it's kind of bit of a mystery to me as far as how to do that. I'd never actually threaded uh, anything in my recent memory. And so I'm doing, you know, you got to drill these holes and then make sure everything lines up and all this sort of stuff. And then you thread it with this little, little tool. And all that was going really well, except for at one point, and I had the winch on there because I was trying to line up one more little hole and I'm drilling into it and must have hit one of the old stainless steel bolts that was that were still in there that i just ground down and so it breaks the drill bit off and uh, again the the winch and everything is still mounted on there so i go and finish up whatever else i was doing and i pull the winch off and you know a minute or two had gone by and after I pull the winch off, I sort of look at the space and everything's painted white and nice. And there's a bunch of shavings and sort of uh, debris left over when I pull the winch off. And like any human being, I'm like, well, I better just wipe that off real quick. And so I just with my hand did one real fast wipe, not uh, remembering that there was the piece of drill bit sticking out of one of the holes and um essentially that was as sharp as a razor blade and so two of my fingers made contact and it cut me like a hot knife through butter uh the blood sprayed everywhere i'll save you the gory details but uh let's just say it looked like a jackson pollock painting with uh red on white when uh, i finally even realized what was going on i almost didn't feel it at first just like a quick little shock almost, and then just red everywhere. Uh, but it's a pretty deep gash. Uh, luckily, somehow though, uh, at compressing it and, and elevating it, the bleeding stopped within the uh, you know 10, 15 minutes. And then I threw a bunch of bandages and a lot of tape on. I taped it really tight. My hope again was that it would be a really clean cut and then just sort of uh, seal back together because I didn't have any super glue to be able to just glue it straight straight together. But I thought, oh man, this is great. I, I use my hands constantly at work. This is going to be just a painful couple of days while this stuff heals up. 
because it's right on the tips of my fingers, uh, my middle finger and my pointer finger. And uh, luckily it's on my right hand and I'm left-handed, but still like it's, you hate to hurt your hands. You hate to hurt your feet. You hate to hurt your back. You hate to hurt anything, but your hands, man, especially when you're whole, I mean, I'd carry around jacks all day today. Um, but in any event, somehow I made it through the night. It didn't hurt. And then a little bit of throbbing from my fingers, just from how tight the tape was on. And that came off, uh, at like three in the morning and that alleviated the pain. I got to sleep again. And then Surprise, surprise, this morning, nothing hurt. I couldn't believe it. Uh, very, very lucky. And I just removed these bandages, and I'm looking at these lacerations. They're not so bad, but they're uh, they're definitely deep, you know, where it gets down into the meat. Um, and they're, they go from one side of the finger all the way to the other. Holy cow, I just swiped over this thing. Uh, pretty lucky that... Uh, it didn't do any severe damage, and I guess I'm lucky I didn't just scrape my whole palm over it, but be careful out there, folks. Uh, always give it a little thought before you do things. I just, I don't know, somehow it just skipped my brain that there was a big barb in there, but uh, in any event, hopefully that will all heal up nicely. I'm going to let that air out for a little bit, and then I'm going to put bandages right back on it before I ski dad a lot of here. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to hit up. So I did a, a quick live stream on, uh, YouTube the other night and I'm going to add that audio into here. I believe if I've got it, if I didn't just toss it, I don't think I did, but we, I basically was talking about, you know, setting sail and going out, um, you know, making the decision to just go out on an adventure, go out to see that sort of thing. And sort of the, the trap of, uh, wanting to have and make the boat absolutely perfect before you do so. And, you know, subjects like that. And then we talk about crossing oceans and a few other little things here and there. And I, th I think it was pretty good little, little conversation with myself I had and everything. So I wanted to add that one on to, to this. And then, um, but before I do that, I definitely needed to get to a couple of uh, listener emails, listener questions, and, uh, you know, just uh, hit some of those up. <clears throat> and the first one goes from Brandon. And Brandon Brandon was a big supporter of mine, and it was so crazy. Uh, back when I was in Michigan, he was, I wanted to send him a book. Uh, he's been a big time supporter of the podcast and, you know, future adventures and stuff. And I was like, well, let me get back to the boat, uh, where I have the newest edition of the book and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, obviously then I get out here, start work and doing all this other stuff. I get distracted. Um, but he's getting into sailing, uh, late, um, do, 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 do disadvantage. I'm at a disadvantage in knowledge, obviously. been reading all the classics and getting what I can from that. Forums are a mixed bag because I have no basis to tell good information. Yeah, forums like online sailing forums and stuff, you're going to get a lot of people that really... Ugh, oof. I don't even like reading some of the comments that end up on YouTube and stuff of just people chiming in for no, no apparent reason. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, yeah, forums. Yeesh. Yeah, I think you always got to watch out because there's a lot of people who like to just spit their opinions out there. I mean, hey, I'm doing it on this podcast right now, but I usually am am pretty uh, forthright about saying that I'm no expert. Um, it's for a person who doesn't know what they don't know. How do I ramp up sailing conditions safely? To get experience with rougher weather. Ah, that is kind of always one of those questions, you know. Uh, It's always a thought of like, well, what's going to happen? And I actually talked about it the other night on that live stream. um, About, yeah, you've got, you've always have that thought of what happens when I go out there and then a storm comes. And it gets really bad and it gets bad for a long time and it gets you know, because it can, it can become very unmanageable very quickly out at sea. Um, But it's one of those things where heavy weather is bound to happen. It's bound to catch you out at some point or another, but it doesn't have to be this horrific, worrying experience. And you also don't have to have had prior experience in it to be able to make it through safely. I mean, I, I, when I head off, uh, out of here in November, chances are I'm going to deal with some pretty ugly weather before, or while I get to the Gulf stream and then try and get out towards the Azores high. And it's one of those things where it, it, it's a, it's definitely a thought. I wouldn't say it's a worry, I do worry about some hundred year storm coming in and, uh, you know, blowing it up like what uh, sunk the Andrea Gale, the Halloween Gale back in, I think that was 91 or something. Um, you know, there are, it's it's something definitely to, to always consider um, to get more experience and, and, and that really is where you're going to develop a bit more confidence is by having those experiences and actually being out in a bit heavier weather. But it's one of those things where it's not like, oh, oh it's it's blowing a, a gale. It's a uh, small craft advisory. Let's go sailing now. Because that's not really a smart thing to do. Um, if, if, you know, if you're trying to, I, I, I would think that if you're trying to, trying to gain experience and you head off in those sort of conditions and then something breaks, you know, people are just going to look at you and be like, Hey, idiot. Why did you go out there in those conditions? Um, so it is, it is a bit of a, it's a good question, Brandon. I, I think it really is. Um, I think honestly, the, the best way to gain more experience in conditions like that would be to go out with people who have been in those sort of conditions, people who have a bit more experience than than you do, and then you can go out there with someone who's already been through it, can sort of deal with it, has has all the different options, and has all the different, um, I always call it the artillery. So you, you have all these different uh, go-to tactics that you can try and work with because every single little heavy weather situation, they're never the same. They're always a little bit different and the direction you're going is a little different. So the best thing is to have a whole bunch of different options to be able to work with. And if this one's not working, then you switch to this one and this one, for example, you know, you might be able to run on a broad reach 
in pretty epic weather with just a staysail up. Uh, and then other times you may want to, because the waves are breaking so hard, just run straight downwind with a little bit of main. And that way you can just surf and get away from the breaking waves. You know, there's little things like that. Um, but yeah, I would say the best thing is to get out there in a little bit, you know, uh, worse weather but with people who have that experience and i would think the best thing is is volunteering as a crew member for deliveries because you know back in the day when i sort of started my career in sailing this was the uh, beginning of the 2000s essentially they were still paying for people you know people pay for crew members to come on the boat for yacht deliveries and you work the passage and that still does happen quite a bit, not as much as it used to, but uh, there are a lot of positions where you can you can sign on and like the owner of the boat will pay for your transportation, pay for the food, but uh, it's an unpaid position. If you can get one of these trips, um, you know, depending on where you are, I know, I know, Brendan, you're out in uh, Washington, so I'm sure there must be some trips out of San Francisco and further south going off to like Hawaii or down to Cabo San Lucas. Uh, I think that that Baja Haha um, and some other, you know, there's anywhere where you can get a couple of days, especially more offshore weather. That's you're going to have a better chance of getting into some a little bit of uglier, more challenging weather. And again, one of the nice things is you will find that not only you stand up to it, but the boat stands up to it and you're like, oh, okay. So that's what, you know, a force, force seven or a force eight storm or a gale technically is like out at sea and the boat held up great. And this is what we did. And, you know, I, I mean, you, you can't ever say that this is, that's going to be a hundred percent. Like now I, now I can handle anything, but it, it's going to gradually just build up and build up and build up. And, you know, like for me, when I did the trip around the world, I had been in some pretty ugly weather before, uh, but I'd never done it by myself. Um, I'd never really been in ugly weather on a West sail and I'm headed down to the Southern ocean. And my goal essentially was to try as many different things until I figured out what worked best and then just sort of continue that and, and say la vie made it all the way around there. So, uh, gaining that experience though with other people, I think is, is one of the biggest things. So, you know, uh, I've, I've found myself in some pretty weird situations, uh, finding yacht deliveries and things like that on the internet. I'm not going to lie. Um, the best, absolute best ones, best trips that I've ever been on and all that sort of stuff have always been word of mouth, being down on the docks, actually physically talking to other human beings that are either the boat owners or captains. Makes a big difference. Um, the old internet has a way of disguising a lot of... Uh, the strangeness that can uh, come out of people. I'm trying to say that as nicely as, as humanly possible. Uh, but hopefully that gives you a little, sheds a little light. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you find some people, and and uh, I will, I don't know if he's still doing it, but John Kretschmer, uh, he does the real deal. He, I, I believe, 
I know in the past he would take people out uh, on yacht deliveries uh, or people you have to pay to do it because he is without a doubt one of the great American uh, captains of our, our time. Uh, but they go across the Atlantic and stuff in the winter um, so that people can experience heavy weather and see what it's like firsthand, like real North Atlantic wintertime heavy weather. So might be worth something uh, looking into. Who knows? Who knows? But thank you so much, Brandon, and I hope you enjoy the book. Sorry it took so long to get to you, but it was so funny because literally I'm I'm sort of peeling through my lists of all these things to do, and I see it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I forgot to send that book. And I go and I, I head down to the post office yesterday at lunch and uh, and then boom, the very next day I get an email. So just a gentle reminder, a friendly reminder, which thank you very much for, <laughs> for reminding me. I do appreciate it. Um, the next one comes from uh, David. David was wondering about the whole long keel, narrow beam, um, and what the motion is sort of like. And basically, I was wondering if the West Sail 32, with its long keel and narrow beam, in your experience, tends to make the crew less apt to get seasick. I thought that a long keel dampened the rolling, curtailed the yawing motion. Just wondering. Uh, well, David, unfortunately, uh, the West Sail, I would consider the West Sail to be more of a full keel with a pretty wide beam. I mean, she's 32 feet, and I believe she's 11 feet wide. Um, but... If you go even narrower than that, I believe, and I know this boat rolls, it does not take much to to get this boat rolling. Well, there's been plenty of times where I'm in an anchorage and uh, a little bit of a swell kicks up, and I'm looking around at all these modern boats, and they're pretty much just taking it, and Sparrow is rolling back and forth like crazy. Um, when I run straight downwind with the waves... I tend to roll really heavily from side to side, um, you know, it, and I don't know if that's just the West Sail 32 or if that has to do more with the the full keel, because um, that you know that's one of the things. Like a long keel, it, the more stable boats are going to be boats that have uh, a, what you would call a fin keel, so not a keel that goes from the front of the boat to the back of the boat. We're talking like a fin keel that that's like a dagger going down. That has a big weight on the bottom and the boat is nice and wide. Um, they're going to be able to handle rolling and the motion's probably going to be a bit better. But again, even when you, if, if you're sailing coastal conditions and you're picking your weather windows for the calmest, nicest stuff, without any swell swell i think is really what tends to make people seasick uh it doesn't really even matter how big your boat is what the design is swell are rolling in in a way that even if your boat is the most stable thing in the world the swell is going to be still picking your boat up a few feet and dropping your boat a few feet very almost unnoticeably but for people who are prone to seasickness, that can set them off like a light switch, and then it's game over. I mean, I've felt seasick. I remember feeling seasick when I was in Australia, young, young man. And when I was a kid, I got seasick all the time. But uh, the last time I was seasick on an actual sailboat, um, we were in some swell that was coming up from the Southern Ocean. 
and it was it was really big. There wasn't any wind. We were motoring, and the boat was getting picked up from a stern and then dropped back down. And they were sizable enough where essentially it's that, that same feeling when an elevator just starts to go up or just starts to go down, but that, you know, every 15 seconds over and over again. So I would say if you're looking for really stable, stable boats, um, you're going to be looking for more modern wider boats with more of a fin keel uh with a big bulb on it anything to be able to uh really cut cut that rolly rolly motion uh but again the ocean is the ocean and uh that motion no matter what you're in isn't really going to change so uh hopefully that helps uh a little bit and uh thank you so much for for writing in i appreciate that this is kind of fun to to do these to to read some of these out. Um, oh man, I know I got another one. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see. Uh, maybe that is it for now. Peter. Do 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 do. Yeah, I think the other ones were pretty much just. Uh, oh yeah, actually no. Pete. Peter. Uh, he hit me up. Uh, let me swing. Oh, where is it? He had another question. He, uh, I'll have to find that one other. But in any event, uh, yeah, I've already gone on longer than I wanted to. And I only got to a couple of the couple of the emails. But um, yeah, so we are charging forth. We're still looking as far as uh, taking off and sailing. Uh, we had to push a lot of the launches and everything back. So. Got to do some work for the yard next week, which will help pay off the bill and everything. And then I think by just uh, the end of the month, beginning of next month, it will be launch time and uh, set and sail. And hopefully on a nice, well, definitely on a nice weather window as long as one presents itself. Because ideally, I want to ride the tail edge of a uh, low pressure system out of here so that I can get... Uh, as far east and away from our coast and into that Gulf Stream, into where the warm, warm weather lies. It's going to be so nice. But uh, anyway, uh, that's it for me tonight. It's time to go relax, kick back, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get a couple more of these suckers in. But uh, the remainder of this is going to be from a live stream, and we're going to be talking about setting sail crossing oceans and a few other things so enjoy thank you all for listening so much i always appreciate it if you want to support the podcast you can head over to patreon the link will be in the description and uh i don't want to even really uh promote it at all but i i had enough requests about getting the shirts and stuff like that made that uh i went ahead and did it but before anybody orders any of them, I, I had a couple sent to my parents. My mom is great at being quality control, so uh, she's going to take a look at it whenever it gets there. Hopefully, it'll be this week, and uh, if she gives me the thumbs up and says it's actual quality, then I'm going to go ahead and pump that out there, and, and I'll put a link and all that sort of stuff so that people can pick it up. Pretty simple, just a sailing into oblivion shirt with the route on the back, but... Uh, they were originally made uh, right after the trip, and people really liked them. So I figured, why not 
people want them, then let's let's get it. And if you want to email the podcast, just head over to sailingintooblivion.com, click the podcast button, and you can email me directly. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, until next time, here we go. All right, in three, two, one, we are live here on Old Mighty Sparrow, Wednesday night, hump day. It's over with. It was a long one, but we have conquered, made it through after some crazy early starts. And tonight, I figure before I hit the hay, head off to the bunk, we're going to talk a little bit about setting sail, when to set sail, if you should set sail, and uh, and where you go when you do that, and hopefully uh, wander into some information about crossing oceans, a.k.a. the Atlantic and maybe the South Atlantic. I'm not too sure. Hopefully the audio quality is okay. I still have to have the heater on because we're in good old Maine, and it is freezing cold up here. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not like UP Michigan cold, but it's it's pretty cold. It's in the 40s, and uh, which is usually my signal to uh, to head south, and that's exactly what my game plan is uh, at this point. But essentially, I want to talk about actually setting sail, and that's one of those things where I, in in my experience, I have uh, run into plenty of people, good friends, uh, acquaintances, just random people in marinas, boatyards, all that sort of stuff that that sort of have kind of big goals, big plans. Uh, they buy boats and they want to use them and they want to experience that whole romantic sort of uh, escape, the dream, the tropical paradise, the ocean setting, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and then for whatever reason, uh, that never comes about. And very typically in my experience, uh, when people are in that situation, one of the things that more often than not comes up is like, I need to fix this on the boat before I can head out to sea safely or this project here needs to be done uh, before I can go out and I need to have a backup this or that or the other thing and I don't know it's it's one of those things where it's it's a very easy and it's a very sensible sort of trap I suppose to fall into because you know on the other hand you obviously don't want to just head out to the ocean or even just a a coastal cruise uh, on a boat that's going to founder and start sinking and has a million problems with it. You know, you're not going to go buy a Hulk sitting in a boatyard for 10 years, taking on water constantly and just throw it in the ocean and go for it. Although I will say I have seen that happen. And the smiles on these people's faces when they just fire up the engine somehow after 10 years and head off to uh, places unknown it's pretty amazing. It's pretty miraculous. Now, whether or not those adventures uh, end up being good adventures or the type that you can only laugh about long after the whole ordeal is over, that is irregardless. Uh, so there, there is sort of a balance point between, you know, just going and grabbing a boat and saying to hell with it. I'm heading out there. We'll see what happens like Captain Ron. And then sensibly 
sitting for years and years on a dock and tinkering and working on the boat until you just get to a point where you've lived on it for so long that you don't actually want to go anywhere and do anything on the boat. And that's, that's the big sort of, uh, I don't know. It's one of those things where it just, it happens. It happens way more often than when people go out there. And I, I've always been told, and I've seen it myself, many of the boats, and I've actually lived this as well, but many of the boats that are out there crossing oceans and doing big trips and things like that are not in a hundred percent the best working order of any any vessel out there. I mean, Sparrow herself, we've set out to sea with issues up on the bowsprit, with issues with the sails, um, you know, problems with the engine, things like this. And, you know, knowing that, yeah, okay, we might have some of these issues, uh, but we're just gonna we're going to sort of wing it and see how things go out there. As long as all the crucial systems, i.e. the mass, the rigging, the sails are in pretty decent shape. Got a sewing machine. I know that we'll be able to sort of keep going and uh, and make it to wherever the heck I want to go to. So that is one of, uh, you know, it's it's just one of those things where there there has to be sort of a line that you draw where you have to tell yourself like, okay, listen, I, I, I need to get this boat to a certain point and then we're just going to go for it after that because you get stuck in that situation of not ever going anywhere. Every boat that sits in the water or sits in a boatyard is going to need to be revamped and redone and things are going to have to be rebuilt over and over and over again and you can find that one of the cycles that just stays is that there's always going to be something to be done on the boat and and that is the trap that you definitely just don't want to fall into so i think one of the or a bunch a bunch of the components that i think about when i'm about to head out which i'm in that situation right now the right at this point I'm about two weeks out from setting sail from Maine. I'm going to go out across the Atlantic towards the Azores. I'm going to be out there for, you know, a month at minimum, probably twice that, if not more, depending on how things go. Um, but, you know, Sparrows, I put Sparrow through about 60, 70,000 miles. The sails aren't in great shape. The engine runs. Uh, the engine's sort of one of those things where, I don't really ever worry about that too much because out at sea, I almost never use it. It's more of a uh, where my destination is. That's when that sort of comes in handy. Um, but the things I'm looking at are, is the mast good? Uh, are the chain plates? Are the rigging? All the stuff to keep my power, aka the sails and the mast going. Is everything looking good? Is everything inspected? And at this point, yes, all that stuff is good. The mass has been rewired as well. So there's also been some improvements done on the boat, which is good. Um, just installed a new solar panel today. So my electricity and my power plant are actually going to be in better shape than they were on the last trip. I, I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. I have two solar panels that were hooked essentially together and um, because one of the solar panels, the larger of the two, was busted 
and not delivering any power, it was essentially, I think, warping whatever power the other ones could give to it and providing almost next to nothing as far as charge on the batteries and all this sort of stuff. And hopefully now all that will be cured. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure it was done early was now, even on land, I can test all that out and such. Um, but so the power plant is good. The engine, I'm going to be firing that up this weekend, doing sort of all the oil changes. I will have the fuel polished, which is going to be nice. Get that done by a pro and uh, clean out. Basically, when they polish the fuel, this guy goes through and uh, it essentially sort of pressure washes inside of the fuel tanks because I must have like a massive amount of growth. Every single time I've undone the um, fuel filters, I always end up looking at what essentially looks like uh, coffee grounds on the top of it, which means, you know, I've got the algae, I've got the bacteria or whatever. The fuel is absolutely filthy. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, I, I see it in real life when sometimes it seems like the engine is getting a little starved of fuel and it's because it's trying to pump it through that, those filthy fuel filters. Um, I'm getting a little lost in the weeds here, but, uh, it is, you know, it's one of those things where there are issues with the boat, but my game plan, instead of trying to fix every single one of them a hundred percent before I head out, because I'm never going to actually be able to do that. My plan is to try to have the necessary equipment on board to be able to manage some of the issues with the boat while I'm out at sea. Um, and also picking and choosing and knowing if, if something like the engine completely fails out there, it's not the end of the world, especially out at sea. I mean, it's not even really a big deal at that point does become a big deal where, wherever I decide to make landfall. But again, that is, uh, negotiable. There aren't, you know, it's not like you absolutely have to have an engine to get back into some Harbor or some port somewhere. It's not a hundred percent essential. Um, so that's a, that's what I'm trying to do is compartmentalize all the areas of, okay, I absolutely need this system to be working a hundred percent. I need this system to be able to be fixed when I'm out there. And some of these other things I'm just not worried about really at all. Again, I do want to preface this by saying that it doesn't mean that, you know, Sparrow's a big heap of crap right now. And I'm just going to chuck it in the water and see what happens because I found out exactly what happens when you do that. And I, you know, I had thought on that last voyage that I had really done a decent job of preparing for a long offshore arduous passage. And, uh, there were just things that I didn't realize were going on. And, you know, that's part of sailing as well. There are going to be those unexpected things that pop up and all of a sudden you're out there. But again, I always like to go back to the fact that you will rise to the occasion when issues come up. If you want to sit there and think about all the what ifs and try and come up with strategies and it freaks you out and gives you anxiety and all of a sudden it's just like, oh my gosh, why would I even head out there because there's so many things can go wrong and I'm not going to be able to do it. You got to just push that. Those those thoughts are only ever going to hinder what you end up doing, and they're never actually going to help. 
And you have to always remember that you will rise to the occasion out there. You will be able to figure out solutions to many of the problems, almost all of them that happen out at sea. And uh, you just have to really trust the fact that that's, that's going to be the situation. And as scary as it might be, you know, bad weather coming in, massive breakdowns, all these things could happen. But there is a silver lining because if you do encounter that sort of thing, which you typically will, when you do rise to the occasion and you find that solution, then all of a sudden life seems pretty epic when you have come up with major, major solutions to major problems. And then all of a sudden you're not only still floating and still alive and all this sort of stuff, but you are still headed towards the destination you want to go to. And it's because you were able to sort of figure this stuff out. And so those opportunities are there, but only if you're ready to just untie the lines, set sail off there, have your passage plan and, uh, and you just go for it. And, you know, again, I'm not talking about any people in in particular or anything like that. It's just something that over the years I've definitely seen and talked to enough people that have grand plans, and then they just end up stalling out and getting stuck in this idea of the boat needs to be a little bit better before I head out. And it just is one of those things where you you just don't want to see it because a lot of times in the worst case scenario is that you end up too old, too decrepit, or something else happens and life gets in the way and then you actually never get to go. Case in point, the boat that I'm sitting on right now, good old mighty Sparrow, sat in a person's yard for nearly 12 years getting fixed and revamped and all this sort of stuff. With the plan in mind that they were going to set sail on it and go for it. And it absolutely never happened. And eventually the old owner of it was just a little bit too old and had to put it up for sale. And I was able to uh, snatch snatch Old Sparrow up. And um, obviously I've done a little bit of the opposite of that. I have used and abused good old Sparrow. But boy... Uh, you know, a tough old boat is what I sort of needed. I mean, I, I've given a lot of TLC to this old girl for sure. Um, I wouldn't want anybody to think that I've neglected her, but, you know, I've never gone over and redone the varnish down below, except for a couple areas that uh, got absolutely destroyed. Um, you know, it's funny because when you spend so much time on a boat uh, and, and you're sort of 24 hours, you're on the boat, like leaning up against the nav station against the wood rail there completely rubbed all the varnish off gripping onto the handrails um right in the companionway i must have spent at least like four five six hours almost every single day sitting there holding on to these two rails and uh ripped all the varnish off and actually dented the wood um and when i actually refinished that years ago I was thinking about stripping it all completely down to bare wood and making it look brand new. And I, I just sort of stepped back and was like, Ooh, wait a minute, I don't want to erase, you know, all that all that work and all those memories I have of holding on to those those two pieces of wood. So I ended up just doing it like a light sand and uh underneath ten coats of varnish, it sort of looks like almost a uh 
like a museum display of like this is where Jerome's hands were gripping uh the wood throughout the southern ocean. I don't know. Kind of goofy, but uh but in any event, yeah, I mean I it is one of those things where I can't I, I, I never want to just tell people, yeah, just go for it, you know, blast off. It doesn't matter. You know, who cares what kind of boat you're on? Uh just rip out there. Uh uh-uh, uh, no, no, no. You have to you have to use your brain. You you don't want to sit there and, and just make crazy decisions and uh you know it's dangerous enough to head offshore or just out on coastal cruising you really want to do it in a sensible way but don't let yourself get caught up in the fact that your your boat doesn't have to be absolutely 100 percent you know ready to round cape horn if you're just going to sail from you know cape hatteras up to long island or something like that and uh Cause it is, it's one of those things where when, when I see that and when I talk to people who are like, well, you know, maybe next year we'll be able to do it. We didn't quite get to it this year. And then they talk about, you know, well, I wanted to do a backup AIS plus two more radars. It's like, oh, why would you? And then it's like, well, I needed more solar panels to power the backup radars. And I just, I don't know. I was like, why do you even need that? <laughs> Um, but again, yeah, I, I, and I'll probably say this throughout a few times, just to sort of cover my own butt, but, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you've got all the safety equipment on board. Uh, you just, you know, I've always said that the only way to be a hundred percent safe out on the ocean and make sure you're covered as far as breakdowns is you just need to tow the exact same boat, uh, that you're on behind you. And that way, if anything breaks, you can just cannibalize it off of that, but. Uh, in any event, in any event, uh, with that in mind, the, the thought of setting sail and going for a nice little rip, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, um, ocean sailing that, uh, the old, the old crossing of the Atlantic, let's say that one, because it's really, uh, the North Atlantic, I'd say is one of those great traditional crossings um, in our in our world. I mean, the Pacific is is absolutely massive to cross if you're doing the actual crossing where you go from the west coast of the U.S. to Australia or New Zealand. You're talking like 10,000 miles, almost half of our planet. Um, you know, they they have that race called the Trans Pack uh, that goes from the West coast to Hawaii. And I've always thought it was kind of funny. Cause if you look at a globe, Hawaii is really just like 2000 miles out. Um, so it's, it's actually kind of comparable, I suppose, to, to going across the Atlantic or at least going out to the Azores in the, uh, in the Atlantic, but that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about actually just setting sail and going across from either the East coast of the Caribbean over towards uh, the Mediterranean or England or any of that sort of stuff. And essentially the sort of the best months and the most typical months uh, are, you know, the like basically May and June. Now it kind of, it's a bit of a balancing act. Now the, the milk run, as we used to call it when we used to do yacht deliveries was the end of the Caribbean season of sailing was typically the, um, Antigua's classic race week, end of April, beginning of May, that finishes up. All of a sudden, there's a ton of jobs. People are looking for crew. They're taking their boats across to the Mediterranean, and uh, it's a decent time to go. May is still a time where you can get pretty massive low-pressure systems that come off of 
the East Coast, Cape Hatteras and all that and head pretty much right across the Atlantic and can really do some some major um basically, you know, you can have a major major looking storm out there uh early on and if you ever need an example of that just read the book uh, A Storm Too Soon by Michael J. Togus, which I believe takes place in 2007, but it's basically a monster storm. Kicks up in May. These guys are only a few hundred miles off of Hatteras, and they go from essentially dead flat calm conditions to uh, 85 knot winds and 70 foot waves in the Gulf Stream uh, or in an eddy of the Gulf Stream. And uh, lose their boat. I mean, get rescued. Uh, but even the Coast Guard are just like, this is the most insane ocean surface I've ever seen in my life. Holy cow. So again, uh, a storm too soon. And you can actually see raw footage on YouTube of the uh, from the helicopter when they first spot this little life raft in these 70-foot monster, like real deal hell on earth sort of, uh, conditions. Um, so it's definitely really cool to, to look at storm too soon, but I don't know why whenever I am talking or am getting ready to talk about like crossing an ocean, somehow I always end up bringing up one of these disaster stories. And I don't know why I do that because I don't think it helps the audience. Uh, <laughs> it definitely seems like I, I don't know. I don't know. It's not too good, but cheers everybody to, uh, to Wednesday. Mm. So, uh, May can be a little bit early, but basically May, June, and July, you're looking at kind of the, the typical window to get across. And whether you're leaving from, let's say the Southern States, let's say, let's say, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, that area you want to leave, you've got a couple great stoppings, uh, stopovers you you're pretty much going to aim for because instead of just trying to like do a, a complete non-stop across to let's say gibraltar the gateway to the mediterranean essentially what you would want to do instead of trying to aim for that even if that is the goal what you're going to do is head for bermuda first and if all goes well and the boat's doing well and you're not having many issues and things aren't going really bad and the crew's all getting along and everything like that then you can just pass by Bermuda. And then the next waypoint that you'd be sort of aiming for would be the Azores. So you've got a couple hundred miles from the East Coast to Bermuda. Then you've got like a 1,000 or 1,400 miles from Bermuda up to the Azores. That little section there will get a little bit, not iffy, but a little bit more uh, or a little bit less predictable because you're going to be at a bit of a higher uh, latitude. You're going to be more in, prominently in the variables. So you're going to be dealing with weather systems coming off the coast and sort of, you're just not, you're, you're well outside of the trade winds belt at that point. But typically people will head north to northeast and get up to the Azores. The Azores, again, are another great stopping off point. There's lots of different islands, very protected. It's all, all that. But if, again, you're just looking across the Atlantic proper and just do it in one shot without stopping, you know, the boat and everything is going well still. You've been out sea for a couple of weeks. Then you just pass by that, and then you have another 12, 1,300 miles until you get to Gibraltar which is a good stopover point, or you go straight into the Mediterranean and 
go to Mallorca, Palma or Sardinia or any of the places that are that are sort of over there. And so you can see how instead of taking it on like it's this big, giant, crazy three and a half thousand mile crossing and impossible to do or anything like that, you can actually just compartmentalize it and say, OK, well. It's pretty much east coast of Bermuda, Bermuda to the Azores, Azores to Gibraltar, Gibraltar to my destination. And that's an easy way to break it up. Um, and it's a safe way to sort of do it. But none of those have to be guaranteed like I'm going to stop here. It can just be for safety reasons. You sort of keep going in that general direction. And if all goes well, then all goes well. Now, conversely, if you're leaving from the Caribbean... Uh, might be a little bit, depending on how the route goes, typically because the Caribbean, you're, you're starting in pretty much to trade winds instead of heading pretty much into the trade winds. Most people will actually head North for a good amount of time before they start making their arc way over, uh, to the East in the variables again, because you, you just don't want to pound into the wind uh constantly so a lot of times people will actually head up towards bermuda but most of the times that's really if you want to head back towards the east coast if you are in in the experiences that i've had crossing the the atlantic uh you know on deliveries and such we pretty much would leave from antigua or the bvi and then we would head north for I don't know, five days to a week, and then we'd start our arc over and head right towards the Azores, which from the Caribbean, it's about 2,000, 2,200 miles. And that's a good chunk of time. Even on a fast boat, it's 10, 12 days on a decently fast big boat, like a 60, 70 footer. Um, and so usually people are ready to take a little three-day or four-day or maybe get some reprovisioning get some, you know, anything and everything, and then uh, and then you can go. One of the tricky things, though, that happens, and this has happened on every every trip that I've gone across where I get close to the Azores, is at some point I end up in the Azores High. And the Azores High is, it can be absolutely beautiful, but it's, a, it's essentially like a circular doldrums. And if you are just trying to do this trip under sail, alone or you just don't have a huge amount of fuel you can get stuck out there for quite some time I, the, the first time i ever sailed across the atlantic we were on a 68 foot oyster captain david miles uh oh my god just an absolute legend this guy i got i we linked up somehow online i think they were down in antigua's race week he's on a 68 foot oyster it's a charter boat had to get it back to the med this guy was from He's from England, like a full-on old-school Brit. He's in his, like, early 50s. Looks exactly like Dudley Moore. Uh, everything, I mean, identical. And, you know, at first, I, I don't think he knew how to make out me. I didn't really know what his deal was. And uh, it just, it was one of those things where I, after a couple of days, everybody else on the boat was a little seasick. He liked to have a sundowner or two for sure, and uh, we ended up having pretty much cocktails whenever I was on watch, and he just talked about all the old school British sailing, the America's Cup, the tall ships, and I just, I, I was completely taken aback as far as uh, how the entire trip just 
just unfolded after that because it went from sort of being like this job prospect. I was a little nervous, you know, the first Atlantic crossing to just looking forward to every time I would get out there up on watch and the captain would come up and he was just on a hover. You know, all of us were just sort of in charge of our own watches and he would come and go as he pleases. But man, we had some of the best discussions and I learned so much about old school British sailing and all that sort of stuff. Man, oh man, that was so fun. Holy cow. And if that's not a good enough reason to want to set sail across the Atlantic, I don't know what is. The people that you're with, you're going to learn a whole lot. If you end up doing it alone, you're going to learn a lot about yourself and the world around you. But when you have four or five people with you, it's uh, quite an experience. Think of just all the all the meals that you get to have together. Unbelievable. So anyway, you set sail from the Caribbean. You head up to the Azores. Maybe you pass by them as well. You get through the Azores high. If you have all the fuel you want, I definitely always recommend sort of being sporadic as far as you get stuck in a big, big calm patch that can go on for, you know, three days, four days. You could just try and burn your way right through it. You know, look at the weather, see what's going on. Uh, But if the sea is calm enough, sometimes it's kind of nice just to float, just float, you know, let the... Let the calm world of the ocean uh, envelop you and let it do it for a good amount of time because it can be a pretty incredible experience. So that's all I'm going to say on that one. Uh, But then you pass by there and again, it's just another straight shot over to Gibraltar, which is a tax-free port. It's great. You might as well stop there anyway, load up on all the booze or whatever else you want, and then you, uh, you head on into the... Mediterranean or wherever else. Now, things do get a little trickier if you're trying to go further north. Um, If you're trying to go up to like Iceland or Ireland or, uh, you know, get up into the Solent, Isle of Wight, southern coast of England, France, all that sort of stuff, then you've got a little more technical sort of stuff to to deal with in, in that situation. And the higher latitude you get to, the better chance that you're going to see some uh, a little bit more adverse weather uh, in your path. But again, one of the things that happens, and I I found this in obviously in the Southern Ocean, was that you know you sort of get out there and you're thinking to yourself, holy cow, like whew, I don't know if I'm going to be ready for some real deal action out here. After you spend a good amount of time out at sea, your confidence level starts to go up and up and up and up and up. Because you're dealing with stuff more and more and more and you're getting more comfortable and you're learning what works and what actually doesn't work. And again, to go right back to what we talked about before, you, you're you more able and more apt to be able to rise to that occasion, deal with the issue, do it in the right way, get through it, and then you get onto the other side and the whole world just seems like a much better place because you've conquered it a little bit and you've had this little victory and and there you go. Uh, but that's part of, I think, part of the reason for making that choice and saying, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna set sail. I'm going to go on this trip, I, whether it's across the Atlantic or down to the islands or even just from Florida over to the Bahamas for a little bit of fun in the sun on the beach and find your own little private island to mess around on for a couple of weeks. 
it's there. The option is there. You get your boat sorted out. You don't get caught up in the fact that there's always going to be more work to be done and you go for it. I mean, that is, it's sometimes a very tough choice, but you do just have to remember that it's well within your grasp. If you've got a little bit of experience to do it, just gauge the type of adventure you're going to have off of that. And then, you know, go for it. You will not regret it. But again, make sure that your boat's not going <laughs> to completely sink on you. Um, I do want to take just a quick look here. Do you have any experience with aluminum sailboats? Only hauling them out in the boatyard, unfortunately. Um, you know, aluminum, steel, fiberglass, wood. Wood's the only one I would steer clear of, uh, mostly because of the amount of work and maintenance and expertise that it takes to be able to maintain that sort of vessel. Got friends up here that have wood boats. They would never have anything but. And uh, I see the amount of work that goes into it and the care and everything. And there is, they say there's a softer feel uh, when the boat is sailing and the boat's made of wood. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe fiberglass is a little more, uh, I mean, I've heard them described as uh, Clorox boxes with an expletive in front of it. Uh, you know, aluminum boats definitely are nice and strong, but aluminum gets pitting and can start to dissolve. I mean, AKA just my mast. Uh, I painted some of the, uh, where the winches were. I got a winch right here. Uh, oh, that's going on, uh, probably this weekend. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, steel boats, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's really knowing the care for it. Obviously, steel is going to be one of the strongest things you can make a boat out of. But uh, I don't know. I think fiberglass is great because it's very, it's, it's less maintenance. Uh, overall, general, constant maintenance, unless you actually smack it into something. Um, so I don't know. I don't have a, a whole lot of experience with the metal boats as far as actually dealing with the maintenance but as far as i understand whether it's aluminum or it's steel the biggest thing is being able to get a paint scraper and a metal brush on every single surface to be able to chase down any bit of rust that ever ever uh comes up ah you get another dun, 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 dun. Oh, oh good old rob is out there he's watching that's so cool rob is one of the uh coolest human beings I've ever met in my life and uh no i do not have a tumor sir uh good old rob rob has uh survived multiple diagnosis of uh and i'm sure he wouldn't mind me talking about this but uh different kind of brain tumors and uh he's also one of the funniest nicest guys that i ever met in my life uh he and his buddy eric sailed a boat from here all the way down to uh virginia and it was really awesome to have him on the podcast and everything and uh he always anytime we ever wanted to give him some guff or didn't want to just let him do whatever the heck he wanted to he'd pull the uh tumor card and be like ah oh, you know those brain tumors i'll tell you and and uh once we sort of figured out what was going on <laughs> he couldn't pull that crap with us anymore uh but cheers anyway jay diz cheers to you there bud that's awesome um uh, are you crew or the owner? I would love to crew for a bit. Wife and I are looking to buy another boat and hit the ocean. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, I 
am the sole owner of uh, this little Westsail 32 Mighty Sparrow. Uh, but when I was sort of talking about some of the other trips, those were mostly uh, me out doing yacht deliveries in my younger years, cutting my teeth in a lot of, uh, so to speak, and uh, learning not only sort of the trade of sailing, but really just learning that uh, I had a full-on crazy passion for not not only just the sailing, but but living and experiencing sort of life in extended periods out at sea. So uh, I have my eye on a lagoon. Oh yeah, the lagoons. You know those big catamarans. I've I've done the biggest the biggest trip I ever did on a cat was I believe it was a lagoon. Uh, about a 43 footer or something like this. This was almost 20 years ago, but we sailed a brand new one from Cape Town, South Africa. Talk about another crossing here, Cape Town, South Africa, all the way back to Tortola in the British Virgin Islands, which was about 6,000 miles. And, uh, the vast majority of this trip all downwind. I mean, once we, once we got north of the variables, which only took four five, six days and hit the trade winds uh in the south atlantic pretty much put a spinnaker up or pulled out the jib and just like a rocket ship it was great we were surfing waves 13 14 15 knots um you know when when the surfing lasted for more than say 20 seconds that's when we knew how to take take a little bit of sail down uh and so that was really good we made great time once we got to the uh doldrums you know you just run one engine at a time nice and quiet and just you're flying through there as well the only time we had any real issue with the boat was uh right in the beginning coming out of cape town and heading into some uh some kind of not ugly but 25 plus knot winds on the nose and having to deal with that in a cat the noise level is obnoxiously loud. The motion was awful. I mean, that was the point where I was almost seasick. Uh, I remember cooking dinner and the steam from the, I don't know, I think I was making some sort of rice vegetable dish. And I'm sitting, and the boat's just, ugh. It does this thing where, you know, a normal boat, if you're beating into the wind, it heels over and you're going up and over like that. Cats just, man, they go up side back side and it's kind of this boxcar but that being said that's about the only real like issue that i can come up with when it comes to cats because even just chartering them or visiting other people that live on catamarans and sail catamarans and marinas holy cow i'm always just looking around like jeez this is like this is like a huge apartment this is unbelievable i can't believe how much space you have and especially chartering in the islands when you have a catamaran down there because you're going to spend a huge amount of time on a mooring or on anchor you got a huge area up forward with big netting and all that sort of stuff to lay out on you've got the cockpit which is gigantic then you've got the living area which is huge as well but then you've got two hulls one here one here i mean even if you don't even if you don't have a huge amount of people you're trying to cram in there, two couples, you each have your own side. Essentially, you have your own boat. They're pretty epic. I say if you got the means for it and you're looking for just kicking back and uh, and loving it, go for it. Holy cow. Charles Legrand, I know that last name. Jerome Best. 
shortest path to being qualified to do a bear boat charter in the Caribbean. Uh, have a valid credit card, probably. <laughs> I would think they would accept anybody uh, to charter those boats at all. Um, I just, just having some experience on a boat similar to whatever you're trying to charter. And let's say, for instance, um, that you want to go and you, you, you're dead set on taking some like uh, 36 foot Genoa or something like that, a monohull. Uh, but you've never, you've only sailed like 24 foot boats. You really want to up the game a little bit. You find and you figure out, okay, that's the boat that I want to charter from Horizon Yacht Charters or wherever down in the BVI. I want to do it next year. So now start looking for sailing schools that have very similar type and size boats. Um, and as long as you get a little bit of experience on there, then all of a sudden you have these qualifications. And when you do actually use a little bit of a sailing school, then you're actually going to end up with, um, you know, you're going to end up with a little bit of a qualification and something that somebody has signed off on saying, you know, such and such has this many hours and we worked on sail handing, uh, powering, docking, this and that and the other thing. And that's what they're actually looking for. And a lot of the charter companies, especially in the BVI, make it as easy as possible for beginners to get down there. The British Virgin Islands are absolutely bar none the best place for beginners to start their chartering, their bareboat chartering adventures uh, in the world because it's line of sight. But those charter companies, they've got it. I mean, a lot of them down in uh, like Nanny Key on Tortola, when you charter a boat, they'll have a professional because those little marinas are super crazy tight. Uh, they're cramming as many boats in as possible. They'll have a professional take that boat and motor out of there into open little water right there in Drake's Passage, and boom, you uh, they'll hop off the boat, and you just go from there. And when you're actually returning it, same exact thing. Now, doesn't mean you can't dock up in some of the other fun places around the BVI. All it means is that service is right there for you, so that the absolute hardest part where most people would be freaking out and wondering like, uh you spend the whole vacation thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to get back onto that dock. It's going to be a nightmare. Well, you don't have to think about that. So hopefully uh, that that gets you. Um, <laughs> so anyway, well, listen, I, I saw that uh, I'm getting a little bit of a blip as far as the quality of the, the uh, video. Tomorrow we will be moving my boat from where it is now over towards the office for the last, like, the next 10, 12, 14 days, as long as I'm still on land. I'm going to have banger internet. We go on to part-time work after this week. I'm hoping to do as many live streams as I can before I set sail because I'm going to be out there for quite a long time. And uh, all the YouTube stuff, the podcasts, everything are going to uh, come to a grinding halt, unfortunately. But... Have no fear, I'll be recording all that sort of stuff while I'm out and be able to to get back uh, back to land eventually and uh, share my experiences with uh, a little more forethought into trying to provide the sort of information that people really want to hear about and everything. So other than that, I hope everybody has a great midweek. Charge your way through Thursday and Friday because the weekend is coming and you want to earn it. 
All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. And uh, more to come. Have a great one.